Hi, I'm Brock Lurie. Thanks for tuning in. Today, we want to talk on the Brock Lurie podcast about an issue that seems to be pervading our society altogether. You've heard this phrase, millennials, right? These are people that have more or less grown up during the first decade of the uh, of the 21st century. Technically, I think it means people born after 1990. Is okay. The, Fair enough. Yeah, that, that yes. makes a lot of sense. Um, okay. Uh, maybe 85 even because... Anyway, in, in 2005, for example, if they were born in 1990, they would only be 15, right? So, uh, okay. I mean, I, I buy that. Whatever. There are people who are teenagers in the aughts. Yeah. In the- now, he, here's the thing. It's not just millennials, by the way. It's I think it's people that are younger than 35, maybe even 40. Good for today, okay, as we speak in the year 2016. What am I talking about? I'm talking about this article that Martha Stewart recently uh, was, uh, was quoted in for, uh, during an interview, and her concept was that millennials are lazy, self-indulgent, and they lack the initiative to be successful. All right, this is what she warns, uh, and they refer to her as the lifestyle guru, Martha Stewart. She says that they're feckless, they're model, molly-coddled youngsters who live off the bank of mum and dad. This is from The Sun. It's an English paper, so forgive the English expressions. Yeah, they mummified mom to mum. That's right. Mum? Okay, there you go. We can do this whole thing with an English accent if you like. Please don't. All right, then. You want a Liverpool accent? Please don't. All right. <laughs> anyway, millionaire lifestyle guru Martha Stewart has issued a stinging criticism of the millennial generation and claimed youngsters are too lazy to get ahead. Emphasis on lazy. Uh, She argues that too many members of Generation Snowflake are still living with their parents rather than getting out into the world and making something of their lives. Okay? Uh, And it goes on to say she is the latest person to rail against Molly Coddled Generation, a a model called... A mollycoddle generation. There you go. Who have turned universities into safe spaces to avoid testing their ideas in the crucible of debate and called on conference attendees to make jazz hands because clapping is too traumatic for their sensitive souls. Uh, I think every business is trying to target millennials, she said in an interview with Luxury Listings. But who are the millennials? Now we are finding out that they are living with their parents. They don't have the initiative to go out and find a little apartment and grow a tomato plant on the terrace. I understand the plight of younger people. The economic circumstances out there are very grim, but you have to work for it. You have to strive for it. You have to go after it. And then they describe a little bit about uh, Martha Stewart's own unique history. She writes, uh, or she, she says in the interview, I got married at 19 and I immediately got an apartment and I fixed it up. I was very proud of everything I did. I got the furniture at auctions for pennies. Beautiful furniture. My apartments were lovely and homey and comfortable. Um, and, and, they, they t- and then she says, they don't know anything and they have to learn about the millennials. They want to learn, but they have, they've grown up without teachers. They know how to make money and how to develop software, but they don't know how to plant a tree. They don't know how to even grow spinach. There's this this notion that she's saying is a very accurate one. There's something lacking in this millennial generation, and so many of them, not all of them, of course, uh, really have no sense of drive. There's there's it's something lacking in them. And I must say, there was a time period in my life, Ari, where you know between jobs, you know, I was relatively comfortable. Uh, <clears throat> I, I just 
I was kind of stuck in a, not such a great relationship with this one woman. And I noticed that I, I just had no drive. I lacked motivation. And it was like for two months, I, I remember waking up thinking, I don't have any purpose. I don't have any desire to do anything great. And, and, and this is with me believing in God and everything. It just, it, somehow it just disappeared, this motivation. And I knew that it wasn't acceptable. I couldn't continue on with this. It was, it was really just kind of slowly sucking the life out of me. I, I, didn't, I wasn't interested in exercising. I wasn't interested in, in making money for that matter. I, I saw no future. I didn't even think about a family all of a sudden. I don't know what happened to me. But I assume this was pre-9-11, <clears throat> too. It was around 9-11. But, but, but 9-11 didn't have the impact on me that, that it had on so many people. When 9-11 happened, I, I knew it was going to happen. Something big like this was going to happen. And the world was so surprised. I, I was not, nor were you. But the point is, forget about 9-11. I mean, it, was, it, did, it did happen to be uh, around the time of 9-11. But I just, I just it, was, it was a weird time. I, I remember thinking about this. This is not good. That much I knew. It was not good. I was not used to this attitude. It's, also, it's almost as if God gave me this, this moment of feeling to understand the, the purpose of motivation, to understand what it feels like to not have motivation. Really, it was, it was like taking, uh, taking out something that's a, a very key ingredient of a cake and then expecting it to be a cake. Uh, it, it just totally lacked all of a sudden. It was like uh, a cake without the sugar, if you want. I was jokingly going to say, you mean without the meat? <laughs> uh, very funny. But, oh, but, funny but motivation is part of our, our, our DNA it should be part of our DNA and I think for a lot of people it was not anyway I kicked myself and I simply said Barack you've got to get back in the game there and I just threw myself into um, uh, looking for opportunities looking for great work and I just I found it um, it's not that I stumbled upon it I just forced myself to do it I right. sent out letters I made calls and everything else and I really I, as I was, even as I was making those calls, I didn't give a damn. But sure enough, I started getting uh, attention again, and, and I wanted to, and I got these great opportunities, and I pursued it. And, and poof, all of a sudden, my motivation came back to me. I was there again. It was me, Barack Lurie, once again. I know it sounds odd to you because, you, you know, we've never talked no, about this. No, no. Look, human beings, it, look, there's a range of emotions every being, human being is capable of. Right. And we all feel them all at certain points. And there are moments of listlessness we all feel. It sometimes doesn't last uh, a month or two. Sometimes it yeah. lasts five minutes. Yeah. But we all feel it. And the reason I mention 9-11 is because 9-11 was a great... Uh, perspective-giving moment in American history where all of us with a brain realize there's intense evil out there that must be confronted. And so it's a motivating thing. <clears throat> but part of the reason you're probably so driven isn't because of 9-11 or that happened in the window when that sort of slow time happened for you. It's because you experienced that and you didn't like how you felt in that and decided, I don't want to feel that way. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I was very... I was very moved by 9-11. But again, it was not irrelevant. It, it did not inform or detract one no, way I'm or the other. No, I'm saying that period where you felt unmotivated yeah. is what was the motivating yeah, thing Yeah, and I, I don't know why I was unmotivated. It's a, it's a, it was an interesting time. It was maybe the relationship I was in uh, with this one woman. She, she's nice in many ways, but it, she was, she was just, I guess, one of these people that, that the... She was perfectly nice on her own, don't get me wrong. But the combination of the two of us together, it just didn't work. And... 
uh, I, I think she's better off without me. I'm, I'm better off without her. It just, we just didn't belong together. There's your answer. Perhaps that was it. And um, I just had no interest in, in moving forward. We just kind of plotted along. And I think that's the closest thing that I can think of how millennials must be thinking these days. Well, it, it's very different. And I only yeah? mention okay. this Correct. because I've Tell seen this up close. Yeah. Uh, you and I came from a generation, and you know we're not from the World War II generation no. necessarily, but we have a connection to that generation by having grandparents who were, who told us those stories. And so we knew what it was like to be a man even before we were men. That's and right. we knew what would be expected of us, and every day we struggled to live up to it and sometimes fail miserably and sometimes hit it out of the park. Every day is different, but we, we know what it's about and we try. The millennials were raised in such a way that, and this is why model coddling was such an important term of phrase that was used in that article, is that they were raised in a way where their parents were so terrified that they would ever figure out how horrible the world would be and they were also raised in the, born in the 90s, raised in the early aughts, in, especially in that, that soccer mom window of time under Bill Clinton, where all the talk in the world was globalization and a new era and a new economy and a new connection. And we'll never have to have I, war I guess again. So. And so, so they were allowed to be special snowflakes. Or you see the snowflakeness of the day because they were raised in a way where their parents assured them, don't worry, honey. You'll never face. You'll never want for anything. Yes, you'll yes. never face real pain. I, I I think you're right, but basically the safety net. It's it's a safety net that that surrounds them in every respect. That's what happens when when you when you approach your children as, as though they must be protected in a in a bubble wrap with regard to everything they they do in their lives. So, for example, uh, you you have this a very good example today. If you are to send out your children just to walk around the street and play with other kids and go go out in the street and play with Johnny, you know, who's... Just find kids up the street and up play. Up the street, yeah, yeah. Three houses, four houses away. Uh, and if you if you don't follow them and make sure that they're, you know, lateraled over to the parent of the next house, well, then then you're a bad parent. In fact, you might go to jail. Okay, this is this is bizarre. This is not the way it used to be when, when I was little. We would ride our bikes to... Our, our friends across friggin' town. Okay, I, I remember I was nine years old. It's hard to describe, but uh, the kind of neighborhood that I was in. But it wasn't a dangerous neighborhood. But he would have me ride my bike all the way to the little corner store about three miles away. And uh, it was uphill both ways. <laughs> but but it, seriously, it was it was a main road. It was the, not a little. You yeah, know, you, had to, you had to treat your bike as if it was a member of traffic yes. and obey some laws yeah. there. And, and by the way, what did he have me get there? Cigars. <laughs> Cigars for him, right? And so I would do that. And he didn't even say you can get yourself a candy bar at the same time. No, I had to just get it and come back, deliver the cigars. And I was perfectly happy doing that. I loved being on my bike. But the point is that to do that today, uh, I mean, somebody would be arrested. Why are you riding your bike? Nine Years old. Yeah, at ages, doing an errand at ages and, and eight, getting nine, a cigar. Ten, yeah. yeah, we were sent. We would leave in the morning, just like you, I'm sure. Ride around our bikes, meeting different friends all day, all around the town or village yeah. we lived in, and come back for either lunch or at sunset. And mom would say, "How was your day, dear?" Not worried at all. Yeah, 
Yeah, now it's there's a there's this terrifying approach to everything. Everyone out there is a child molester. Everyone is the most dangerous person in the world. Look, it's not to say that there um, are, are bad people out there, but I I figure there's probably just as many child molesters back then as there are now, percentage wise. Okay, it's just God forbid, but there it is. There okay. were actually more. The, the, Probably the incidents were higher. In other words, it, the point you're making is it's actually safer now and people are more paranoid, which right. makes no sense. Right. It's a safety net world. And look, you, you've got to just – we had our own noggin about us. We, we, we – you know, now it's the point that if you do go out on your own, well, you, don't, you have no sense of danger yourself as a, a young child. None. And that's very bizarre. I, I don't understand how this could, could be happening, but you, you have to kind of – Bear with me on this one, where you, you're riding your bike, you're walking along, and you've just got your own sense of what's right and wrong and how to protect yourself. That's, that's it. And just like when you ride a bike, you have to understand the dangers of going over th- through something muddy, you might slip, and, and such like that. So you, you learn about what danger is, and that's part of the process of, being, uh, of growing up. And sometimes bad things happen. You ever get your like, cuff of your pants stuck in the chain? Yeah. I, yeah. learned, I learned really quickly. And you figured out how to work out yourself yeah. or someone would see you and help you. Yeah. yeah. One day I didn't lock my bike and someone, you know, took my bike and started throwing it around. Eventually I found it, but it, it could have been stolen for all that. You know, and I felt like a schmuck for not being careful enough with my bike. Uh, and another time, you know, it's, this is funny, you know, going a little bit forward in, in the years. Ah, I mean, okay, even more to the point. And then a couple more years in the future, we would go to the middle school dances. I, we would go on our own. And we'd just, you know, hop a ride with some other friends, maybe grab a taxi, and we'd be there. And we'd come home when we came home. We were like 13, 14 years old. You know, that's certainly more, more old than 9 or 10 years old, I, I grant you that. But still, the notion today that you could do that uh, is anathema to most people. You, you couldn't do that. Yeah, my my parents would drop my friends and I and their parents would drop us off in Westwood, you know, by UCLA for a movie. We'd see a seven o'clock movie, get out, go to the arcade, and be done around midnight. And we would take a cab home. Yeah, that's the way it is. And you know, and and no. Sometimes our, our our friends would get drunk. Some you know, and we we were better than that. I mean, we did we didn't go crazy by any stretch. You know, we we were born to Jewish parents that expected us to act responsibly in a in a very heavy way. And I appreciated that about them. I, I never begrudged them for um, making sure that we didn't do drugs and didn't do alcohol. But we were just raised well in that sense, and we they, they gave us a lot of discretion. Yeah, well, and we one also, day, one we day, also we, had Jewish mothers that if we did something bad, would kill us. <laughs> that's right. So if we're going to well, get into trouble, it's best we die outside the house. Right. <laughs> right? To, to, the point, uh, to that point, I remember once being uh, very late from our curfew, and we came home late. And my dad was so upset with us. And I think we were only an hour and a half late or so. And I remember it being wintertime because my dad was so angry at both of us. And he slapped us. Uh, and I was, it was really painful. And, and it was so hard that he slipped on the ice. And he fell down himself. He got hurt. But, but to him, it was so just bizarre that we would be this late. And I felt really bad that, that I made him worry so much. I, I recognized that I would made him worried so much. But the point is that there is this notion you go out, do your own thing, ride your bikes, go running, play with your friends, get out of the house. Okay? It, but, but now it's all you have to stay insular and everything else. All right, so going forward, 
you would also go to the high school dance, like I told you, the middle school dance, then the high school dance. And, and here's another thing that really shocked me. When I went to Stanford, in fact, for that matter, when I was applying to colleges, I, I did everything on my own. I, I, I had to do everything on my own. I, my parents didn't know what the whole college process was, for that matter. What did, what did they know about that, right? I mean, but we were expected to get into a really good college. Uh, that's what they wanted from us. And frankly, if we didn't want to do that, well, that's our problem. Okay, so we were very self-motivated. My, my parents never were on top of us when it came to homework. Never. Okay, all four of us, all four kids, not once did our parents ever say, Barack or Rod or whatever, did, did you do your homework? Where's your homework? Not one friggin' time. Okay, now that sounds bizarre, right? I mean, how can this be? But, but it was for all four of us. And if that's the case, and then all four of us went to pretty darn good colleges. Um, one went to Williams, which is a great school. One went to West Point, And two of us went to Stanford, all right? Not, not because we had any connections or anything else like that. It wasn't like that. We just worked really hard. And we got into those schools. And because we felt we had to be responsible for our own destiny. And, and likewise with our applications, that we weren't told what to do or anything else. And I, I, I actually asked, you know, friends instead of uh, my parents about how, how best to write my applications and such. So that was one thing. And, then, and my favorite part is when, when I actually went to college, uh, I, we were living in England at the time. <laughs> I went from my apartment in London, okay? And my parents said, bye-bye, right? They paid for the ticket to, to fly to San Francisco <laughs> from, from London. And I had to switch planes, by the way. It wasn't easy. And uh, I packed my own bag I to figure out what I needed for college. And I took the, the tube, which is the subway, from our place to the Heathrow Airport. And I had to have my passport and everything else. I, I was totally responsible for everything. Then, of course, I flew to, uh, uh, I forget where, which city I connected and make sure that I do the right connection. And then I went, I got to uh, the airport, and fortunately, there was some vans out there. But I was ready to take a taxi or a bus. I'd figure this out to get to Stanford. Big deal, which is about 40 minutes south of uh, San Francisco. And I went, and I, I went to my dorm where I was assigned. I figured out where I was. And I got into my room. I was given the keys, and uh, here I am. I dropped my bag, and uh, there's a bed there. And I just had to figure some bedding. They didn't have the bedding, apparently, for me that, that was there, so I had to buy some. I did that. And I'm looking around as I'm doing this, and what do I see? I see all, all these other students, not everyone, but a lot of other students, they were surrounded by their parents saying, Charlie, do you need anything? You know I love you. Anything else? And, they, they, and they, the parents are helping, especially with the girls' rooms. They're putting up posters and linens and little furniture items and, and making all sorts of, you know, coddly sounds. And, and again, not everyone. But I just thought, this is really different. Like, I, I wouldn't want this. Just, I, I love the idea, idea of being an adult. I love the sense that I'm growing up now. And all the more reason, just leave, leave your kid to do what he needs to do, to learn and to make his own mistakes. I, I, I put it to you that I, make, I made far fewer mistakes uh, in my freshman year as, as far as kind of the administration of things and such. I got things done. 
I understood that I need to be on time. I didn't, no one need to, to push me around to, to get things done. Um, and it, it worked out really well. But these other students, a lot of them were just kind of like, they went crazy because now they were alone and they got drunk and everything else. I, it just, that had no interest for me. You knew you weren't there to get drunk. You knew right. you were there for other purposes. That's exactly right. You knew if you wanted to get drunk, there's plenty of time later in life to do such right. things. Yeah. And there's <laughs> right. a time and a place. Not that I ever really desired to get drunk anyway, but theoretically, yes, there would be a time and place to where you really kind of let loose and, and have some, you know, maybe celebrating fi- the end of finals or something like that. But it wasn't like that. Now, you might say at Stanford, you know, well, it's not really a good example because so many of the students are self-motivated. And that's really true. I mean, there are really some exceptional students there. Uh, but I, I dare say it's even more to the point. And in other kind of uh, lesser known schools, uh, you know, and, and you know me, I, I, I'm not elitist about being at Stanford. It doesn't mean a thing to me. But yes, you do have to have higher grades. You do have to have higher SATs and accomplish uh, quite a few things to get into Stanford. Fine. But that's just only one accomplishment. You could really screw it up at Stanford and you could do it really fantastically at uh, CSUN, for example, Cal State uh, University at Northridge, right? You could do a great job there and be an incredible, exceptional student if you apply yourself. Can I ask you a question? Of course. Would, what do you think of the idea that... Um, the reason the millennials are mollycoddled, useless little whatever you want to call them today yeah. is because they didn't have the opportunity to learn by doing like you did when you went and played by yourself. Well, I think all those that's hours, ex- or I did yeah. the same way. Yeah, did you did your own errands? Did your own? Um, you were responsible for so many more things. That's the irony of it: is that in a day of today where we have so much efficiency and technology, where you can do so much more. They're actually pulling away of the things that we should be responsible for, right? I mean, I, I think very few parents, for example, have the notion of chores for their children. Very few. And I teach my, we have a nanny and she kind of takes care of the house and she'll make the beds anyway. But I tell the nanny, let the kids make their own beds. Let them sleep in it. Let them understand what it's like to sleep in a bed that's not well made because, and the consequences of that. Uh, pick up their clothes and make sure that their room is are, are clean and organized. But but you don't get that sense from parents doing that today at all. I don't think that's a... It's like they, they, they rob these children of the opportunity to learn for themselves about the basics of life, how to, how to build things for themselves, how to create their own lives. And, I, I mean, I, I remember... In, in our hometown, there was a very rich man who had two daughters. And one day, my mother saw them working at a Dairy Queen or some, some such place. And the, my mom turned to this man, we'll call him Mr. Smith, and she, and she said, Mr. Smith, you know, I'm just surprised to see your daughters working there. They have, you have so much money, you can, you know, give them a trust fund and everything else and make sure that they work in, uh, in a more... Kind of maybe glamorous just kind of, place. Glamorous place, yeah. yeah. And and he said something to her that I'll never forget, which is, Tamar, why would I rob my children of the opportunity to learn the value of money? Right? And he's so right. Of course, he's a hundred percent right. If if anything, you you should really rush your kids to do that lemonade stand for one thing, and then flip burgers at some point. Now, I say this is a vegan. Go go ahead and do it. You you gotta. Be it a waiter or a waitress, just 
do that, what you think is a menial task, so that you understand how powerful it is uh, to make money and, and how hard you have to work to make money and how you can leverage money the right way. Because otherwise, you're going to have two things. One is no appreciation for what it takes to make money. And, for, and if that's the case, you'll have no appreciation of what it takes to build our society. And you forgot the third thing, the most important. You'll have no money. You will <laughs> spend it all because yes. you didn't appreciate yeah. what it takes you, to earn you, it. You, you just, and, and you'll never have the appreciation of growing. You just can't do it. And, and so the Martha Stewart article, it was a great launching pad in my mind because it triggered all sorts of memories and thoughts about why is it so? I mean, that's, that's the basic. She's describing the problem very well, right? The, the kids are in their parents' mom and dad's basement, right? And they're watching TV if, if they're lucky. More likely than not, they're doing drugs and playing video games. But they're certainly not motivated. And the question is, Why? Right? I mean, you can, you can point to all sorts of video games and, and it's triggering this or that part of the brain, which kind of, you know, de-emphasizes motivation. I don't buy that. Well, there's a, I, I, there's I, a I don't bigger b- answer. I know you hate me interjecting, but sometimes I I'm must. Not, all right. This is but I'm not one. looking for the answer yet. I, I'm, I'm asking, let me pose the question, okay? Because I don't buy it that it's the video thing. It isn't. Okay, hold on, hold on. It isn't. I, I, I want to also describe what it's not. It's not just the video thing. It's, it's also... Um, uh, not that um, they're um, you know not being told what to do uh, at school that there's that there's no sense of history although that's important too. There's a lot of things that it's not happening. Uh, I think that the main reason why these kids are not motivated is because no one has given them a sense of purpose. No one has given them a a, a sense of their own destiny that they are responsible for their own future. Whether that's you know cleaning up the beds, organizing a room, doing their own homework, uh, filling out their own applications for college, um, or or doing their own errands, or making their own play you know you know play dates with their friends, uh, going to the dance themselves, um, and and learning to pick themselves up and to make mistakes on their own, I, I think that's the main reason, and they and they feel like there's no that they're above every job right that they. They need to uh, they need to work some sort of fancy job because, you know, they come from a high class or you know elite class of family, or they even went to a great college for that matter, and they deserve a much higher paying job. Thank you very much. To which I say, if you do not have a high paying job out there, then go for the low paying job. Okay, I don't care how it looks on your resume. You're far better off saying to an employer like myself. I'm an employer. If somebody told me. Look, I graduated, couldn't get a job, I worked at McDonald's. Okay? I would respect that person. If, on the other hand, I see this big gap for two years, and the guy's now interviewing with me, and, I, and, and after his college, and I said, what did you do? And he goes, well, I've been looking for opportunities out there, and there's just none in common. I, I would have very little respect for him. But certainly, I would have more respect for the, the guy who worked at McDonald's, Right? Now you were going to say something about yeah, why. What do you think? I think you're you're three quarters of a right for the, uh, of the reason for this in the four or five elements that you outlined. They're all reasonable arguments. They all make logical sense. But there's a reason beyond the reasons, and it's this to crystallize it in one idea. It's the idea that apathy and cynicism have become a style, a valued style of the time. Right. It's more than just that jobs are below me and I think I'm better than you and all that. It's that kids have been 
While they've been coddled on the one hand, they've been robbed of their intellectual and sexual innocence at an early age, which made them very cynical. And then they're very apathetic because the more we have devalued America and patriotism and all that rah-rah stuff that is viewed as almost campy nowadays, the more above it all we all are, like Western European intellectuals in a cafe smoking cigarettes and drinking our espresso with a lemon twist. Um, we have cultivated in our young people this apathetic worldview in which apathy itself is a rewarded style choice. Well, yes, I, I agree with that. It is, it's a, and it's an expected style choice, if right. you want to use it that way. Here's another way of looking at it, because I think we, we are actually coming to the same area, maybe from different doors. And, and here's another way to look at it. It's that they've been coddled so much, they've put, been put in bubble wrap all their lives, and they're, they're never even allowed to fall and, and skin their knee, right? So to speak, just as a metaphor. And, and so when they go out into the big bad world, they expect someone to be giving them this wonderful job. They expect somebody to not only give them the wonderful job, but, but to tell them how great they're doing, notwithstanding that they're doing a terrible job. Right. Okay. And they expect if they're a French fry chef at McDonald's that it comes with their own gopher and personal assistant and secretary. Right. Each who in turn believe that th that job is, is beneath them for whatever reason. Right. right? So it, this is the world that, that we live in now uh, where uh, everything is expected uh, everything is supposed to be a handout. Everything is supposed to be protected as well. Yeah, and you... so, so, so no surprise that they lack the motivation to actually achieve something because achievement um, includes the possibility of risk of failure. Right, and one more element that neither of us have mentioned. Wait, did you, did you hear wrong. that? Yes. Did you hear that? Wait, wait, yes. hang on. I, achievement that... requires risk and failure. Hold, hold on. This is the most central theme that I want to bring out of from this podcast because... If you cannot, if you do not have a sense of risk or embrace the possibility of risk of failure, you will not achieve and you will not have any motivation. I think that's the key to this, the whole discussion. Right. Right? Well, that's why I think you'll love the next point I was going to bring up, which is we, neither of us mentioned it yet, but this is key to it, is when they play organized sports, the winner and the loser element have been removed. In fact, many times they don't even keep score. Without learning to compete, the, the ability to win and lose leads to this apathy. Right. And it leads to the element that you just said, which is so central, right. that they are unwilling to risk anything because what's the point of risking something for just some idea like freedom or achievement or right. family, they're, any they're, of the they're, they're, basic American values? Yeah, you're using your sports example, and I like it. If you take away the notion of winning and losing, then when when that kid is about to, uh, you know, he, he wants to defend the the goal, the hockey goal, let's say, just use that sport for now, uh, and and it, you know, he doesn't do what he needs to do to protect the goal, then of course a score goes against him, and the the team, if if nothing counts, if they truly believe nothing counts, they'll say, ah, no big deal. That's right. But but you want that kid like it was when we were little. To worry about what the team is going to think of him and how they're going to say, Johnson, you suck, right? You want that, a little bit of that. Think of him and do to him. Johnson, you suck, you're off the team. Right. You're cut, you're yeah. no good. You let us down, Johnny. Yeah. Okay? And that's the way it, it, it really should be. There's something to that. There's a little bit of 
th th there's both the, the, the carrot and the stick that needs to be applied. And unfortunately, we, we offer too much of the carrot and virtually none of the stick. That's right. And, and a scoring basically tells you that because a score, I mean, our, our elementary school where our kids go to, you know, I love it in many different ways. It's great. But they're one of these schools that doesn't like scoring. Okay, so it's not surprising. But, but then, you know, what's also not surprising is that we have a losing season. And nobody asks why. And nobody tries because there's no reward there's no if reward. you do score. And there's no penalty if you lose. Well, the coach, if he ever sits down with the boys, it's a boys team, and says, listen, guys, we're 0-5. You know, this is, this is not good. We, I want to change the season. I want to have a winning season. We've got another six games, and we better win. And I want to win the next six games. Who's in? I am coach. What is it going to take to get there? We're going to have to work harder. We're going to have to play better. What's the strategy we're going to do? That's how the focus is. That's how you get things done. All right, I want to move on to another thing. Here's where the issue is. You know, it, I always like seeing uh, anecdotes and, and seeing examples of people. Right, I mean, for example, this or that person, he seems to be thin, right? Or she seems to be uh, pretty or whatever it is. She seems to be well put together. Uh, he seems to be a hard worker. She seems to be a hard worker. And I ask myself, what, what causes this person to be this way, right? I mean, the most obvious one is somebody who's fat versus skinny, right? You see somebody who's obese and you wonder, wow, how, how did this happen, right? And because the vegan only ate none of the cow and I had to eat the rest. <laughs> All right, you. All right. Don't derail me here. Sorry. You, you ask why this person became the way he became. And uh, you, you say, I don't want to do that, right? You, it, it's a, it's a um, cautionary tale in many circumstances. And likewise, the person who seems motivated, I want to know why. Why is this person? And by the way, it's not all millennials who we're talking about, right? There are plenty of millennials that seem to have that motivation that you and I know about. And, and there's so, plenty of baby boomers who don't. Right. So, so the question becomes, yeah. and let's just focus on millennials now. Why is this millennial... More, more, more motivated than that millennial. What's the difference? Okay, I mean, we, it's kind of think of it as a, a laboratory, right? A, um, what a, a test tube sort of, you know, a study. There clearly are differences. It's not just one person uniquely, you know, has a unique DNA that has ambition and motivation. I mean, if it is, then, then I'd be very surprised because why do we see it so much in the millennials of today and not so much in the, the past generations, right? Uh, you would even have a motivation problem during the, the so-called greatest generation. You, you didn't hear about that very much. These are people that just had to get by. They, they were expected to make their own bones. I think part of it is, yes, the social structure sort of thing where you're told that don't worry, the worst that can happen, well, then you'll, just, you, you'll never be on the street. You'll get social security, for example. You can always have welfare. Uh, that's a bad signal. Okay, but I don't think I don't think that's the main reason why it is that why there's a distinction. Um, I, I have two very young associates who are in their basically they're about the same age, about thirty. But I, I knew them when they were twenty six or so, and they always had this motivation. They always wanted to work hard. And the one thing that I saw in them and others like them, there's one thing in common. They came from a um, a very religious family that had a core center of culture and tradition 
And that was what mattered. They did not get bothered by the ever-changing fads of the day. Okay, whether that's gay marriage or uh, transgender bathrooms or safe spaces or hate speech or whatever you wanted to call it. They, they didn't get lost in all that. They had one core principle, and that is that you, you do God's work on, while you're on this planet. Uh, there are certain roles for men and for women, and God bless that. And that they, they are taught the value of courage and other values that are similar to that. That seems to be the one differentiating factor between those that seem to be highly motivated and those that seem to not be motivated. Now, that's not to say that you can't have an atheist family, for example, where the kids are motivated. But I, but I think that, first of all, that's an exception. I think it's also in spite of the atheism. I think a lot of atheist families, while they, they technically don't believe in God, they nevertheless espouse the same values as a religious family. I know quite a few of such people. Well, don't forget, just because atheists don't believe in God does not mean atheism isn't its own religion. Uh, let's not so. go there. I, I agree with you about but that. But I'm just but, saying it's but, an adherent to a set of values. That's that a different. It's a, it's a different approach. It's a different approach. I'm talking about something very different. They, it's a, they, they are, in fact, uh, espousing the Christianity or the Judaism of their past without realizing it. They're, they're going through the motions of Christianity and Judaism and not realizing they're giving credit to it without, although silently so. So in other words, they are, um, they are not practicing what they're preaching. Not at all. They are in fact living Christian lives while saying that they're otherwise. In, in, in many ways, it's like the Moranos of Spain, right? They were doing all these things that were Jewish traditions. They, they, they thought of themselves as Christians, but they were in fact, they were Jews doing Jewish things. And, you know, after a while, of course, that dissipates and eventually you don't realize who you are and such. But these people that I'm talking about, those who have that motivation, I think there's that one common theme. And, and now, if you are somebody that is interested in this area in terms of who's motivated, who's not, right? And you were to discover what I dis have discovered. You know, it's a, it's, you could say it's anecdotal, but I don't think it is. I think if you really broke it down, those who are truly motivated have in their family background some core sets of beliefs, some core expectations of not only what is right and wrong, but what you know, the, the notion of responsibility and accountability. If you teach that over and over again to your kids, it, they will maintain motivation. They will have it. Uh, if they, but however, by contrast, if your whole focus is that society owes you and that you as parents need to protect them every single step of the way, you'll, you'll, they'll lose that motivation because they don't have the sense of um, what bravery is, what... <clears throat> what integrity is, what honesty is. They, they, don't care. They, they don't teach those things to the kids. They just simply send them to school, expect, expect them to learn stuff and come home. And then maybe if you're lucky, they'll have dinner together. But it's very disjointed. And then they're, they're so surprised that their kids end up being nothings. That's, that's my theory on it, but I think I'm quite right. I've, I've lived 53 years on the planet now, and I, I, I've noticed this very clear pattern that people with very strong moral senses and moral compasses, they tend to have children that have that motivation. So, you know, when, when people start 
poo-pooing religion and and wondering whether or not we should have any religion in schools and such like that. This is one of the consequences. Martha Stewart is right. She, the, the millennials, by and large, do not have motivation. They have bizarre expectations, but no one's infused them with, with any sense of purpose. No one's infused them with a sense of risk and, and what it takes to build a society that they, that they now enjoy so well. They just, they just want to take. They don't want to give. And that's, that's the role that you have as a, as a student, so not as a student, as a child of, of any generation. You have to understand your first obligation is that you are obligated to the society that has given you so much. You now, it's your turn to be something and to do something with your lives. Be motivated. Just like I had to kick myself, I think uh, parents of children have to kick themselves. And, and every individual has to kick themselves. Otherwise, we will indeed have a world just like Martha Stewart's fears. I'm Brock Lurie. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk with you next week.